Well, welcome to Palm Sunday, uh, the one week before we get to gather together and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And next week, of course, is uh, the most important day of the entire year in our faith. <clears throat> Without next week, our faith, the Christian faith, would just be built on a house of cards. It is the resurrection that makes everything different. It is Easter that makes Christianity powerful. It is Easter that makes our faith transformative. But before Jesus makes his way to the cross, he has to make his way into Jerusalem. And that's what we're talking about today on Palm Sunday. When our king has made his way back into the city where he is going to be arrested, placed on trial, and eventually crucified. But there are some interesting things that happen before that happens. It was the day the Jewish people thought that their king was going to enter Jerusalem as this mighty king, as a mighty warrior, as a powerful military king, a king that was just going to wipe the ground with the Romans that were in charge. It was the day that the people of Jerusalem thought that their Messiah would return so that he could end the oppression of a foreign power. They had been under foreign power too many times. They were tired and they wanted their Messiah to save them. It made me think about the, what we do when our leadership, even today, travels around. And so I did a little research. I've never personally witnessed when a dignitary comes to town or when our president travels around, but it's a huge deal. Whenever the president of the United States visits a city, there is a well-oiled machine that uh, begins to roll into high gear. The White House staff, the Secret Service staff, local, state law enforcement all scramble to make sure that everything is in place long before the president ever shows up. Up to three months before his arrival, the Secret Service's agents are checking the local routes. And they're seeing what are safe uh, points of entry. They're looking for possible uh, uh, blockages. They're looking for problems along the way. They, they're looking for blind spots where they might not be able to see somebody, an enemy, but the enemy could see them. They're looking for high vantage points where somebody would have an advantage over them. Anything that might prove a risk they look for. And then local police are notified of people who have already proven to be security risks in the past that live in that area. And these people are actually warned, they are visited, and they are told that they are going to be watched very closely while the president is in town. And after that, as the day gets uh, closer, the agents begin to bring in dog or bomb sniffing, bomb -sniffing dogs. Uh, and equipment. They start to check all the parked cars. They check the potential stops along the route. If the president is going to get out of his heavily armored limousine and go into a building, they will set up a canopy over that exit so no one can see him from above. They send coordinators and agents to every single hospital in the immediate area. They ensure that there are facilities that are available so that the president is never more than 10 minutes away from a trauma center. And finally, as Air Force One arrives, 
There is also an identical plane that will land in a secret location just in case the primary aircraft becomes disabled. And then of the morning of the president's arrival, highways and local roads will be shut down to ensure that the 20 vehicle motorcade is able to proceed or advance un, unimpended. The president, uh, if he is visiting a local hotel, Secret Service will clear the very the top or the bottom three floors of that building. They will remove every single electronic device from those floors to prevent any foreign agents from being able to listen in on a conversation. As the presidential motorcade travels between locations, hundreds of heavily armed law enforcement officers, secret service agents all travel with him the entire way. But they're not alone. There will be medics on hand. They will have supplies of blood just in case the president needs a transfusion. Nothing is left to chance and every single risk is minimized. And that's just our president. And yet these preparations also serve a, a greater strategic purpose than just in ensuring the safety of our president. They serve to, pro to project the power of the office of the president of the United States. They are there to show the power of the United States. Most countries would do something very similar. They posture themselves and project their display of power. It's for safety, yes, to protect their dignitary, to protect their ruler, but it's also a show of how powerful that country is. Because if you think about it, if we would go to this type of expense just to make sure that the president is safe in Duluth, Minnesota or wherever, what would we be willing to do to protect our people and our country? See, this projection of military power is what political scientists call hard power. And it's that outward display of a military and a coordinated power. This is how strong we are. This is how we have everything together. There's another sort of, of power. It's the use of humanitarian aid or assisting a, another country in order to make or to keep an ally. And that's what's called soft power. Both of them are used to demonstrate that the United States has... Uh, capabilities to foreign powers who may be tempted to act in ways that are counter to our interests. One way says, hey, miss with us, and this is what you have to look forward to. And the other one says, if you miss with us, and this is what you will no longer receive. The United States didn't make up this strategy. It wasn't new for us. It's not a modern term. This has been happening for a long, long time ago. This is not a modern concept. And the rulers of the ancient world would also use this projection of power as well. They used hard power. They also could withhold soft power. And no one did this better than the Roman government. No one did this better than the Roman powers which ruled over the entire Western world at the time of Jesus. The land of Israel may have had its own king, but it was really the Romans who were in charge. 
the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, would have used this opportunity of Passover when the city was full of all of these Jewish pilgrims that were flooding the city to celebrate Passover, to project his power. And he would march into the city with hundreds or perhaps thousands of soldiers in order to keep the peace. Not to be outdone though, the Judean Jewish king Herod devised a procession of his own to walk into the city at the beginning of Passover. Both of these were displays of hard power. They were designed to strike awe and fear into the multitude of visitors that were there that week. King Herod would have rode into town on a mighty war horse. His armor would have been polished to a perfect shine and escorted by a hundred plus armed soldiers and all of his powerful nobles. King Herod would have been greeted though by Pilate. The Roman government wasn't going to take chances here. They too needed everyone to know that the real power was in Rome. But for that day, that one day every year, the Jewish king had the city's attention. And the pomp and the circumstance of King Herod coming into town would have been overwhelming. And the people of Jerusalem would have gathered with thousands of other travelers as they have come to the city of Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover, in order to celebrate the festival where they get to celebrate how God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And as the king entered, he would have heard familiar words. Familiar words for even us today, for we say them as well. It comes from Psalm 18, verse 26. This is what King Herod would have heard. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this Psalm 118 was a traditional uh, song sung to, to praise God. It was to praise God, to give God thanks for sending them a righteous and, a, and an outstanding and a just king. But we know from the gospels that King Herod Antipas was far from a righteous and just king. What was supposed to be a festival of praise for the Jewish people celebrating uh, their deliverance from slavery has be now become this ridiculous display of power from the Jewish king and the Roman government. And it's into this scene, it's on this day that we refer to now as Jesus and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus himself descends upon the city of Jerusalem and makes his entrance, which you will see is much less grand, but yet completely humble. And we'll be looking at this story. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, this is where the story is, is found. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll get there in a little bit. But on this day, Jesus knew exactly what he was going to be walking into. He knew that he was not going to be greeted warmly from the Jewish powers that day. In fact, his visit at the same time last year 
Some of the Pharisees told him in Luke chapter 13 that Herod knew about him and Herod knew about all the crowds that were coming to see Jesus and the attention that he was getting. And they warned him that he better leave because the king wanted his head. The king wanted him dead. And in Luke chapter 13, this is how Jesus responds to them the year prior. He says, go tell that fox that I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, now listen here, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus left Jerusalem that day a year prior with that warning that they would see him again. And he told them that they will not see him again until they sing this same song that they have now perverted by singing it to an unrighteous king. This is bold. This was extremely bold by Jesus. It was almost like he was telling them, go ahead and sing that song to Herod if you want to, but I'll be back. And then you will see who is the real king. You will hear those words twice that day. Once will be the great display of power, but the other will be a display of humbleness and grace. And so let's fast forward a year to the Sunday that we are celebrating today, the Sunday before the Passover festival. We call it Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday when Jesus has returned to enter into the city of Jerusalem. And this time he doesn't enter in with his ragtag band of disciples just to quietly leave again. His exit from Jerusalem this time will be completely different. And so this time he makes preparations. And even though it may not seem like it at first on the surface here, these preparations are even more extensive than we make for the president of the United States. For these preparations have not just been made three months in advance. These preparations were written about 550 years prior to Jesus walking into Jerusalem. Those preparations that he intentionally fulfilled are found in the prophecy of the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here's Jesus, and he is arriving after these ridiculous displays of power and prestige by by Pilate and by King Herod. And I want you to look at verse 30 of chapter 19 in Luke. Jesus is now on the outskirts of the city and he's about ready to enter when he tells his two disciples, two of his disciples, go to the village ahead of you. 
And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Verse 30 makes it very clear to us that this this, uh, donkey has never been ridden. This colt has never been ridden before. I want you to think about that for a moment. Whoever owned this donkey had other plans for this animal, didn't they? Maybe they intended to sell it when it was old enough to work. Maybe they intended to use it eventually themselves. But those owners had no idea from the moment that that donkey was born of its intended and special purpose. Something as mundane, something as everyday as a donkey has suddenly now become one of the central characters in one of our most important stories in our faith. One of the most important chapters of human history, a central character is a mundane, everyday donkey, (coughs) which was raised for no other purpose No other purpose than to carry the king of the universe upon its back. And I don't want you to let this detail pass you by this morning. I want you to think about this. How often do we get bored with our everyday work? How often do we get bored with our routine, with the mundane of our lives? And how many of us realize that what we do today What we do tomorrow, what we're going to do this week and next week may in fact be playing an essential part in God's eternal plan. Some of the acts of service to the kingdom may seem that they're more glorious than others. Others may receive more attention than others, but all of them are essential to God's kingdom. For God tells us that every single body of Christ is just as important as the other. And so it was for this donkey on that day. This donkey was Jesus has chosen to ride back in Jerusalem. See, back in the ancient days before Jesus, an Israelite king would have a choice of the method of transportation. And if it was a time of war, they would get on the back of a war horse and ride into town. But if it was a time of peace, the king was supposed to ride a donkey. And it's this message of peace that Jesus brings to Jerusalem on this day. You see on that day, there were at least two different parades, at least two parades. One of them was where King Herod rode into the city on a war horse, surrounded by his armed guards and sending a message that this is domination by force. The other was King Jesus riding humbly on the back of a powerless young donkey, but equally proclaiming a kingdom of peace. See, both parades were met with crowds of people that day. Jesus' entry was attended by hundreds, perhaps thousands. They were all caught up in the moment. And they had heard about Jesus. They recognized him. Here he comes. Here, here's our savior. Here's our Messiah. And they threw their cloaks on the ground in front of him. And this was a, uh, an ancient gesture 
going back to the kings of Israel when the people would throw their cloaks on the ground so that the king did not have to walk on bare dirt. And those who didn't have cloaks that day didn't want to be left out. And they started looking around and they ripped off the, from the surrounding trees all of the palm fronds that were in front of them. And these branches were symbols of that celebration. And the crowds eagerly waved them through the air and they sang those same words that another crowd said to King Herod earlier that day. But this time they include verse 25. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord for from the house of the Lord, we bless you. Save us, they said. Hosanna, they cried. But Jesus knew all of their hearts. And at this moment of this, the true king's triumphant entry back into town, he pauses and he is overcome with sadness. You see, his desires for Jerusalem haven't changed from, verse, or from chapter 13. They're still the same. And he longs for the day when this city would turn from its sin, from his wickedness, and to embrace the true hope of peace. But Jesus knows that they won't. And so look at verse 41. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and in a circle and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and, and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. See, we know now that 35 years later, this prophecy will be fulfilled when the Romans would gather around the city of Jerusalem and they would build ramparts around it and they would starve it in a siege of submission. They would march in and they would massacre its inhabitants. They would destroy the city and they would knock the magnificent temple of the Lord to the ground. See, I try to place myself... Uh, when I read stories like this, I try to place myself on that hillside with Jesus as my Messiah is starting to make his descent into town. And I'm sure if you were there with me, we would both be extremely excited to see him come, to see the one that we see as our hope coming triumphantly into the city. Here he comes, save us, grant us success, Hosanna in the highest. But then maybe imagine the confusion when we see him riding a donkey and then he stops and cries and weeps over our city because in barely a week, one of his disciples is going to sell him out. In barely a week, his best friend is going to deny that he ever knew him. 
and barely a week, the rest of them will run in fear when he is betrayed and arrested. In barely a week, some of the crowd that is now waving palm branches will be crying out, crucify him and demanding the release of a murderer instead of their Messiah. In barely a week, their attention will be grabbed by the next great spectacle and he would be all but forgotten by most. But yet you and I are citizens on this side of history. And so that we know that this entry into Jerusalem truly is, truly is the beginning of his triumph. You see, in the coming week, we're going to get to celebrate Good Friday. We're going to get to celebrate Easter next week when Jesus's final showdown with sin and death is going to be completed. And it's going to mark his final steps towards towards the sacrifice, which redeems all of us. Do not lose this message and the meaning behind the fact that Jesus had to stop and weep for his people. For there are too many of us, too many Christians that are just going through the motions of following a, of a, following a king that they really don't want to obey. Oblivious to their need of repentance, refusing to turn to the king of peace for help. See, our perfect creator designed us all with a free will and boy, was it a strong one, Right? Too often we think that we are strong enough to face our problems by ourselves, that we can just figure it out. The people of Jerusalem thought that they were strong enough to overthrow the Roman government. And we see where that got them. Jesus entered humbly into Jerusalem that day. Yet he did it as the king of peace. And he is the only source of peace that we could ever hope for in this life. We try to find peace in many ways. We try to find peace through our family. Maybe it's through our work. Sometimes it can be through vices like drugs or alcohol. We may try to escape the dreariness or the conflict in our life through entertainment or through those little screens that we carry in our pockets. But at the end of the day, none of these are an adequate substitute for the king of peace. None of these earthly things will ever bring the kind of deep, lasting peace that only Jesus can provide. So this morning, I want you to look at the palm that you're holding in your hand as as our praise team comes up. I want this to be a reminder to you of the celebration that the King of Peace has come into your world. The King of Peace has come into your Jerusalem. And I wonder, is he stopping on the outskirts and weeping? Let this be a reminder of how easy it is for us to forget the sacrifice that he made, how easy it is for us to forget the call to repentance that he gives us. The depth of his desire for salvation just gets wrapped up in all of the things that we do every single day. 
If you haven't taken the opportunity to return back to Jesus, I want you to know this morning that you can do that right here, right now, this morning. You can return back to Jesus sitting there in your pew. You can return back to Jesus sitting in your home, on your couch, in your car, wherever you may be. There's nothing that he desires more, nothing that he desires more than to see his people turn to him and be saved. Nothing. I want you to look at that palm branch and think if it was you laying that down in front of your king, what is he coming into? What have you given him? What have you allowed him to become the Lord and Savior over? Our praise team is going to sing a song. I want you to pay attention to some of these words. My life is yours. My hope is in you only. And my heart you hold. Because you made this sinner holy. Would you stand as we end in worship?
palm branch that you're holding in your hands this morning represents the king of peace wanting to come into your life. But it also represents all that you need to lay down for him to truly, for him to truly be the king. Well, if we would bow our heads and close our eyes this morning, may we pray to our one and true God, our God of peace. Jesus, we thank you that you humbled yourself, that you came into your city riding on the back of a donkey. You could have come on a war horse. You could have come with an army. But Lord, you come or you came to Jerusalem just as you come to us today, offering peace, offering hope. And so Jesus, I would pray with our congregation that are here in this sanctuary this morning, but also all of those that are watching online today, both today and in the future, that today would be a day that we would lay down our life for you, Jesus. That we're not here just to celebrate you offering to come into our city, but we're offering you our Jerusalem. We're offering you everything about ourselves. And Lord, may it be that as you come into our life, that we can humbly accept you and ask you to be our Lord and our Savior, to take every part of our being, to take every part of our life. And so Jesus, maybe there's some here this morning who need to return to you. They know that they've walked away. They know that it is them who has left. And so those this morning, I would pray that you would speak very clearly to them and show them parts of their lives that they have taken back. And Lord, there could be those here today. In fact, we would expect it that there are those here today and those that are watching today who have never laid down their life for you ever. And today would be a day, the week before Easter, the week before we get to celebrate your resurrection, today would be a day where we lay down our life for you and ask you to be our Lord, ask you to be our King of hope and peace. And if there is anyone here today, all you need to do is turn to Jesus and tell him that you believe him. He did what he said he was going to do. He is our Lord. We get to invite him to be that. And then Lord, we confess, we don't have all the answers. We don't even understand all of it. And Lord, we confess that we are so less than perfect. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us need a savior. Thank you, Jesus, for humbly coming into our Jerusalem this morning. Thank you, Lord, for not forcing yourself upon us, 
but asking us to consider you, asking us to invite you in. May that be so for all of us here this morning. And Jesus, as we lay this palm frond on our nightstand or our dresser or wherever it may go in our home, may it be a reminder this week that the King of Peace comes into our life and that we get to lay down our life for him. Jesus, be with our congregation as we go our separate ways this morning. Be with those that are watching online as well. Help us all, Lord, to be your church today, to celebrate who you are, our Savior, our King, our Prince of Peace. And Jesus, it's in your name. We all love you. And all of us say together on this Palm Sunday, amen.